The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. Ken, I've really been impressed with the shorts we've been watching. When I look at the shorts that were nominated for the Oscar last year, they seem less like warm-ups for doing a feature work and more like a real art form in themselves. Yeah, me too. And I think one of the factors for me is just the economy of the filmmaking. I mean, being able to cut out all the fat, make them incredibly lean in terms of telling the story in kind of the most direct, but yet powerful way possible. Case in point is the Martha Mitchell effect. That film covers so much ground in less than 40 minutes that you feel like you've learned this entire almost underground history of Watergate by the end of it. It's also a great character study and I think a comment on our contemporary society as well. You can see the Martha Mitchell effect now on Netflix. Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson. And I'm Mike Merrill. Welcome to Top Docs. Today, we're talking to Seth Meyers, Reese Thomas, and Alex Bono of Documentary Now. Seth is a creator, executive producer, and writer on the series. Reese is creator, EP, and director. And Alex is EP, director, and cinematographer. Separately or together, Reese and Alex have directed all of the episodes of Documentary Now, which is just launching season four or season 53, if you want to be precise. So if you're not familiar with Documentary Now, it's an American mockumentary TV series on IFC, which was created by Fred Armisen, Bill Hader, Seth Meyers, and Reese Thomas that premiered in August of 2015. The idea for this series was born out of a short film sequence from Saturday Night Live. Many of these folks were former cast members. We're going to talk about a lot of things in this interview, but the key thing here is that these are fun. They're 23 minutes of joy, and they do a great job of parodying, with love, the conventions of documentary filmmaking, the tropes, the styles, and yes, often the subject. And I think one of the things that many of these shorts do well is, and this is not surprising, given the deep training many of the writers and actors have, and the fact that they met on Saturday Night Live, and that this is... Yeah, executive produced by Lauren Michaels. Besides Seth, we have John Mullaney as a writer. We often had Fred Armisen and Bill Hader as actors. Is the way they focus on character, how character is depicted, how it's created really in documentary films. And you can feel that through and through in all of them. Another thing they really take advantage of and draw from is location. And for season four, all of the episodes were shot in the UK and focus on stories that are either based in the UK or in Europe. And in our conversation, we primarily focused on episodes one and two, Soldier of Illusion, which is a truly masterful parody of the great Werner Herzog, done in an extremely original, funny, and perceptive way, I think. The notion of location is really crucial and also world building. I really felt like we were entering this other realm in many cases. As we discussed with them, this is probably at least partly due to what they felt is their growing confidence in their skills and the familiarity of the creative team. It was interesting to hear about why they waited until season four to focus on Werner Herzog. And I think it just 
speaks to the fact that these guys are serious and they didn't want to screw it up and they wanted to make sure that they got it right. And they're also open to ideas. So episode three, two hairdressers in Bagleyport is based on a totally obscure BBC two documentary from 1994 that Kate Blanchett saw and brought to their attention. Seth who wrote the episode and Reese and Alex did an incredible job. And of course the casting was wonderful. And we also talked about the amazing actors in episode four, How They Threw Rocks, which features the best in Welsh talent. The series has been nominated for numerous primetime Emmys, Critics' Choice Awards, and Writers Guild of America Awards. And the schedule for the upcoming season is episode one and two, Soldier of Illusion, parts one and two, will be launched on October 19th. Episode three, Two Hairdressers in Bagleyport, will air on October 26th. And episode four, How They Threw Rocks, will air on November 2nd. These can be seen on IFC and are available for streaming on AMC+. Alex, Reese, Seth, welcome to Top Docs. So happy to be Thanks very much. Yeah, thanks for having me. (laughs) I'm Seth. If anybody's wondering, when I talk, it'll sound like this. Yeah, and I'm Reese. I have a gentle British accent. And this is Alex, and I just sound like just a Ron Howard American. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you guys for being here. Really appreciate it. A lot of the reception about the series, the season, it's focused on the comfort it brings people. And by the way, that's a great thing. But I want to talk a little bit about the ambition of the series, uh, of the season, especially of this opening duo, which is Soldier of Illusion. It's a two-part piece that kicks off the season. It's at least partly a parody of Burden of Dreams, which is a documentary about the making of Fitzcarraldo, directed by Werner Herzog, starring Klaus Kinski. I love the epic nature of this. Maybe it's not a complete coincidence that I think it was written by John Mulaney, but I want to talk about one particular challenge here, which is parodying Werner Herzog. People have been doing Werner Herzog imitations for decades. We're probably coming up with a half century anniversary of the first killer Herzog impersonation. And he's in on it, right? He does it all the time. I think he was on Colbert last week doing a bit. How did you seek to make this fresh? And was that challenge part of the fun for you? I do think it probably explains why one of the most iconic documentary filmmakers made it until our fourth season before we took it on. From the very beginning, our biggest fear was stepping somewhere that had already been well-trod, be it anything that felt like Spinal Tap or anything that felt like The Office or anything that felt like comedy that had come before. And so there was a element of steering clear. And then it did seem like we earned the right to give it a shot this time, especially in beyond capable hands. It seemed like we could get away with it. Yeah, we got bolder, we got got more confident (laughs) in ourselves. (laughs) I remember Reese used to always say, I think I can beat the Maisels in a fight. (laughs) <laughs> I, don't, I wouldn't want to take on Werner Herzog. I mean, there was a lot to take on. And it's true that in a lot of our other episodes, it's not the entire works of Errol Morris, it's Thin Blue Line. And this was very much like, okay, it's a two-part episode. And, and yeah, it's structurally Burden of Dreams, but it's also My Best Fiend and it's also Grizzly Man. It's, it's a lot of like different elements from the works of Werner Herzog and John's process. I was thinking about he also, in writing co-op with Seth, and I mean, he does, everybody, Seth, I know you do the same thing. There's so much research that goes into the writing of these things. And I know that John's looking at all of the works of Herzog and trying to just, in this particular episode, 
do a Herzog episode as opposed to doing a Burden of Dreams episode specifically. You feel that as soon as you see that bear ambling onto the set, you're like, oh, where is this going to go, right? This can go a lot of places. I love how you go for the scene where in Grizzly Man, where Herzog puts on the headphones and listens to the tape of the antagonist's agonizing death. Here you have Alan Yaffa watching this, sits there silently for a second. He's like, and we're going to do something about Gary Jack's hair. You just put a subtle pin on it, but you can feel that as a watcher, you're like, oh, where's this going to go? How do you keep it from exploding, I wonder? I feel like that's the whole game of this show. And we do definitely go through a process of sort of pushing and pulling. Just, you never quite know. Because obviously a lot of this episode was also very much just writing on Alexander Skarsgård, taking on Werner, which, you know, in itself is an intimidating thing, given, like you said, there's been such a long history of people impersonating it. And I think that obviously dictates a lot of the tone as well, that if his performance had come in too broad or if we'd pushed it that way, then yeah, suddenly everything is exploding. I think that's the one thing like I really do enjoy about this show. And now being in our fourth season, it doesn't need to be said as much, but there is a really specific boundary of what's too much that we all kind of understand somehow. <laughs> and again, obviously it goes to crazy places, but I think we've learned now the groundwork that we have to lay if we're going to go there. And yeah, when it's nice to undercut, like you said, not going fully grizzly man or not doing so, if we can just undercut it, that then it puts us in safer territory. It's always a challenge, I think, each episode. And obviously some are a lot broader than others. First of all, Alex and Reese are such the arbiters of that tone. You know, we all write trying to picture what it will look like. They get it back. First of all, I think they keep the acting really in line with what the tone is and then they find it in the edit. But it's so nice to be doing comedy that's almost never dependent on cutting to something. Like so much of it happens in a documentary shot. And so that's where it never gets too needy for the laugh because it sort of happens and you catch it the way you would catch a great moment in a documentary. Nonetheless, in this two-part episode, there is the rather broad idea of doing a mashup of Burden of Dreams, but also including a lot of other Herzog references, as Alex mentioned, with a sitcom pilot with the inspired title of The Bachelor Nanny. So who is to blame for this incredible mashup idea? If there's one thing Mulaney knows more than Werner Herzog's oeuvre, it's shitty sitcoms from the 80s and 90s. I think Mulaney might be the Werner Herzog of sketches written about sitcoms, bad family sitcoms. And you were clearly all on board. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I remember we pitched, again, it was a while ago when we first met about it, but there was definitely obviously like Burden of Dreams is always the fun one as a framework. I feel like we always sort of implicitly knew that would be a good one for us. But yeah, the sitcom thing took hold really fast. The one image I remember walking away from that meeting, because I was trying to figure out how we do it was we were all laughing about the idea of them having to carry in a set of bleachers. At the time, we thought we might be shooting in the jungle, but bringing bleachers and bringing a whole audience through a jungle. I remember that being the image that sort of terrified me, but was also, I knew it was really funny. That for me was also like that, because we talked about this years ago. I mean, we talked about Herzog season one. We talked about this idea at least two years ago at this point. And the image that stayed with me from even that first table was the studio audience, the warm-up guy and the sets, like making their way through the jungle. Like that's kind of solidified. Like, okay, I get it now. That's the steamboat over the mountain. 
I, I told this story and did you, have you guys noticed that I was misquoted and the story is better now about Yes. <laughs> so Werner Herzog was on my show and I brought in pictures of documentary now to show of this episode, stills. And as I explained to recent hours, the minute I started, I thought this is a terrible mistake. It was like if I brought a photo album of your wedding, but it was pictures of other people playing you. Like that's, he was looking, and again, <laughs> he's a weird fella, but even this was, and I showed him a picture of what we were talking about. I said this, we were trying to match Aguirre. And he looked at me and said, no one will ever match it, which is great. But <laughs> I told this story on a junket and it was, I figured out IFC transcribed it wrong. So it is not, the as <laughs> Bernard Herzog looked at me and said, no one will ever watch it, which is it's <laughs> way funnier than I explained documentary now to Werner Herzog and a man who has yeah. made some, he's like box office gold and he's still. <laughs> <laughs> so I, have, it's the, I think the perfect outcome is that what I thought was a very good Werner Herzog story was made even better by a transcription error. So I, I had to ask you about that. So are you talking about when he was on the show just this past June? Yeah. Because... Okay, so he was obviously on to talk about his new novel, but you didn't talk about documentary now. What happened? We didn't talk about it on camera because, again, I just thought it might be too... I mean, again, it was confusing for him. It was also the idea of just saying to my audience on some random night, you guys have all seen Aguirre, right? No? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, maybe the next time he's on, if he's watched it. I remember they asked Stephen Sondheim, uh, rest in peace. He watched uh, uh, co-op and he said some version of like, there's a lot of words in those songs. Like, so like <laughs> In the end, you didn't go to the jungle. You went to the Ular Mountains that border between Russia and Asia. Check your globes and your maps to find those. <laughs> but I wanted to ask Alex, besides being one of the directors with Reese, you're also the cinematographer of this show. What were the immense challenges of shooting on location in a place to make it look like the so-called Ular Mountains? I mean, we were shooting in a Welsh slate mine. This season, we shot the whole season in the UK. We shot one episode in Belgium, standing in for France, but everything else was shot in the UK. And we spent about a month shooting in Wales for two different episodes. The challenge was, hey, we're going to the UK. We're not going to be able to go to a jungle this season. Mr. Mullaney had to quickly pivot the script that he was writing, take it out of the jungle and figure out where else could he put it. And we just sent him a bunch of location photos of like, well, we're shooting here and we're shooting here. There's this kind of like desolate terrain and Reese who's from Wales, and maybe you should be answering this Reese, but Reese kind of knew better than anybody, like the kinds of desolate, inhabitable <laughs> landscapes you can find in Wales. <laughs> and was quick to pitch, hey, it's the tundra. It's the sort of some obscure Siberian landscape. It could be any of those things. And so John was able to quickly pivot it, just kind of lean into that brutal terrain. But yeah, we were in a Welsh slate mine in the winter, about an hour's drive from the nearest hotel, like in the middle of nowhere. And yeah, it was rough. I think John probably found this very amusing that he was writing about, oh, let's do a funny parody about the making of Fitzcarraldo, but I think the entire time, all Reese and I were thinking was like, sure, sure, we're going to have to actually do that for real. <laughs> and so we were ourselves on the side of a mountain trying to build a sitcom set for real. Literally, the conversation was, how do we make sure the set does not blow away when the sort of winds come rushing down the mountain the way that they do? And you're going to wake up, go to the set the next morning, and literally there's going to be nothing there. 
it was like a little bowl. It was like we were in the pit of this story and it was like this little wind bowl thing. And it, it was so crazy in that. Our production designer, weirdly, I feel like he had experience. He built some set somewhere else, like on the Yorkshire Moors or something. So we, we basically built our set with this construction team of these giant water tanks all behind it to basically weigh it down. It was like this huge, it was like a big engineering feat. And they obviously had to get that in there as well. It was way more elaborate than it seemed when we were all pitching on it. And then obviously you got the yurts and all that kind of stuff that had to come in. Yeah, it was amusingly difficult. No one dined, I will say that in, in our defense. We're not comparing it to Fitzcarraldo, but it was the closest we've come so far. I would say like the long, for the existence of my friendship with Alex and Reese, being a writer at SNL and now here, we just jump off from a place of whimsy and then they have to go solve a million problems. And Doc, now they have more time than we gave them at SNL, but uh, a lot of harder <laughs> shows. Like, well, sorry, you got to go an hour away from the most northern Welsh holiday in. I'll probably regret saying this, but I do think for Alex and I, and it might be because of SNL, that's the side of it that we really do enjoy as well. Like it's kind of fun to figure that out because it, it does, it points you in these weird directions and you make all these wonderful discoveries. And that's the fun of the show is that we have been fortunate. We always, from the very beginning, knew that, look, if we're going to do this correctly, rather than half pay attention to our sets and our locations in the name of comedy, like, no, we should commit and we should try and make everything as authentic as possible and travel to the place if we can travel to the place, make the environments real. So it's led to all these kind of just fun experiences as well of making this show. It's just like, you, you kind of know that you're off on an adventure. And the other side of that is what you did for the two hairdressers at Bagley Port, where you really create this world. And it's very much like the world you see in the original doc, which we can talk about in a second, but down to the level of, I'm kind of focused on sound and the Foley work. There's a crane shot and the steps on the cobblestone, like on the street, they're the wrong shoes. It's exactly the same. <laughs> As they get closer to the door, it gets out of sync. Um, it, yeah. That attention yeah. to detail, why, why is it so important to you? Because it's fun. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Although it made me want to scream, but yeah. <laughs> no, it's fun knowing that someone out there will notice it. I think that's part of the joy is like these little like deep cut moments. And what's fun is I think everyone we work with like it gets infectious. Obviously, we have a lot of crew that we, especially on our post side, that have been with us since day one. But then we had this new UK crew. And part of the fun is watching them realizing how far we want to take this. And then them bringing weird ideas and weird observations that they saw in the original documentary that, like, you know, and it does, it starts becoming this layered thing all across the board. The nice thing is, like, no one. Obviously, you add a detail like that, most people miss it, but no one's upset that you took the extra step. And, you know, I personally for me, you know, I late night comedy, we take it very seriously, but it's so disposable, right? Every episode pushes the last one a million years into the past. And so it's really fun to work on something where it started so out of date that it doesn't age badly and people will rewatch them. And I think that there's not a single episode we've ever made that doesn't have a hundred things you'll catch the second time. Yeah. And I think that they feel it. They feel it in the creation. I think part of it too is like, you know, I was thinking about the way that the show gets reviewed and there's so much, so many nice comments about the lenses that we chose or the film grain that we chose and all that kind of thing. But, you know, the truth is that going to a Welsh slate mine or going to the exact same barber shop that you see in the real documentary, I mean, it was the same location and creating the environment for real as much as we can, uh, just so much better for the actors. 
it's like you get such a better performance out of everybody when you take the actors to a really inhospitable location and say, we're actually going to march up this mountain now and careful, the slate's really slippery. Don't fall down and break your leg. That it, it just, you don't have to like, now let's all make believe they're just in it. <laughs> and it's so much more, I mean, everybody's, it's like a fun exercise to do because it's so much more real than mm -hmm. if we were on a sound stage that we painted to look like the colors and the textures of hair salon from the documentary. It's like, no, this is it. This is where they did it. That, mm -hmm. that, that, you know, hair drying station is the one from the documentary. And now you're going to sit in it too. And it just sort of immediately brings you like, wow, this is, I'm really doing it. It really helps everybody's performance as well. I matched the two and I did notice that they have modernized the windows. <laughs> yeah. They're not exactly yeah. the same. Yeah. Thank uh, you for your and thanks right. for pointing that out. It really bugged the hell out of me. We did explore whether we could do some scenic work to reframe because yeah, they put double glazing in. Although I will say that we settled on it because it was still period accurate and it was not a type of window technology that would not have existed at that time. All right, we'll give you a pass on that. And one. by the way, once they cash the uh, documentary now check from using it as a location, that place is going to be the most modern hair salon in Blackpool. <laughs> They're rolling in it now. So can you talk about where that episode came from? Because I believe your leading actress had something to do with that. Yeah, it's like our producer, Andrew Singer, knew about it first. Or maybe she told you guys, I can't remember. But yeah, Kate Blanchett, who did an episode for us in season three, which really is for an actor who has nothing but stunning performances. It really is a stunning performance. <laughs> and so when she brought this to us, I mean, it was really also the first domino that led to us doing the whole season in the UK. But it seemed crazy not to get the band back together. And she's just so wonderful again. And it's also, it's what I love the most about this show. And originally what was so great about Fred and Bill as actors is that they would play characters in a completely different style of comedy that was completely different. And then to see that Kate can do it as well is one of the reasons it's so fun that we keep making it. Yeah, and Harry Walters also is terrific here. It's funny because I saw this and I was like, I think that's the actress, that's Lady Carolyn from Succession. And my wife was like, no, no, it's Rebecca's mom from Ted Lasso. Um, <laughs> what an incredible right. couple of years she's had. Uh, and yeah, here yeah. too, you know, like just really falls into that role. It's so perfect. She's so wonderful. Yeah. She's such a wonderful, perfect person for that role. You know, and what's fun about both of them, and I think the type of actors that, Want, we don't have any money to pay anybody. It's not like we're saying, hey, let's make an offer on Kate Blanchett. It's like they're people that are willing to work with us because it sounds fun. Kate, in this episode, you know, came to us with, is it okay if I pat out my costume a bit? Is it okay if I wear these giant Coke bottle glasses? Is it okay if I have, you know, giant teeth? And we're, it's just like, she's just sort of having fun with it and not taking herself preciously. And it's the fun of it that like, yes, we're being precise, but also it's a really a fun playground for people like that to come in and play with us. And I think you can tell that Kate and Harriet, when you watch it and you realize they have such respect for the kind of women they're playing. When we reached out to Jamie Dimitriou, he had a ton of his own opinions about Octopus Teacher and what he could bring to that. So it is also a conversation. We have a Welsh cat, an entirely Welsh cast for how they threw rocks and they also want to bring their authenticity to it. So that's the other thing is everybody wants to come and have fun, but they also realize Part of the fun is if we're making a mistake or there's a mistake in the writing or something, they'll say, actually, they know that the worst thing for us would be a false note. And so it's really cool to have that with our cast as well. 
And in When They Threw Rocks, I, I love the Jonathan Price character, who's this writer who loves his own clever phrasings. And I thought that was such a great, like a writer's parody of writing. And, you know, as comedy writers, you love phrasing, you love getting every word right. He was so much fun. I mean, again, kind of a dream come true for somebody like me to have, like, over the course of this season, we got a lot of real, I never thought I'd write for us. And he's kind of at the top of the list. I will say my favorite moment, which I had nothing to do with, is in that episode. And we talked about the sort of flourishes you find in post. The opening graphics package for the the main fight, <laughs> the sort of wide world of sports 1970s is well, the first time I think I immediately stopped and wrote them to say, oh my God. Neil Loken, <laughs> our assistant editor is just a, he's just a graphics genius. It's a quick funny story about Jonathan Price and that, you know, he's got to deliver the, he's got to talk us through the entire episode. We sit down with him and it's just pages and pages, like it's like a 10 page monologue. I'm prepared that this is going to take six hours. It just can take that long when it's that much dialogue. And he's just there with us for the one day and he comes in. I go to meet him and I realize, oh my God, he has no idea what this episode is really about. We had already shot it, but we couldn't even show him dailies yet. And so I go, oh boy, okay, so this is going to take a minute. But um, so there's, there's, there's these two, they're Welsh guys and they're, they're throwing rocks and I'm just prepared to like have it to explain. He's like, okay, I think I've got it. And then he just <laughs> sat down and just did it. Like first take every line. I mean, I literally, it, we were done in about 45 minutes. He just did all the dialogue. In one take. And I had that moment that I'm like, I think we should do it again because we're here. <laughs> you know, yeah, just what an absolute pro and a joy and totally got in it and got the joke. And so that that is the other sort of like, whatever, absolute pleasure of working on a show like this is getting to work with people like that. Man, I've never, like, when do you get the opportunity to work with Jonathan Price and Kate Blanchett and John Reese davies Tom Jones in the same season of a show? It's incredible. And we should also give a mention to your incredible cast in episodes one and two, Soldier of Illusion. Oh, they please. Were yeah. Also incredible. Yeah. Oh, August, yeah. Dieter Skarsgård was an incredible Herzog-esque character for sure. That goes without say. August Deal just blew my doors off. He was just yeah. so funny. And it is like kind of a chance to leave fresh tracks because what we were talking about with Werner Herzog, I feel like hadn't happened with Kinski in the same way. And so... It was watching almost the first sketch of a recurring character. The minute he showed up, he wanted to see him. I wish he was in every episode. <laughs> I wish he like came into Bagleyport to get his haircut. Oh, God, yeah. What was funny as well is he, being a German actor, he just also arrived with a whole encyclopedic knowledge of Kinski's life and very much, uh, you know, a lot of the negatives as well. Like he really kind of was like, I've got to do this right. <laughs> like he, he wanted to get it right. Or also continually just knew where to add a little flourish and knew on a psychological level, be like, this is what Kinski would be thinking to himself in this moment. Like, this is what's like, you always had that layer of this is what's really going on in his head at this moment. It's not about this. It's about this. What's funny with his energy when he slipped into Kinski mode as well was that you could feel all the other actors were on edge because they had no idea what he was going to do. Like it it really, it was a fun kinetic energy where I don't know where the scene is going to go, what he's going to do. And it, so it added this life to the scene that you weren't expecting. So I know we're running short on time, but I did want to ask you guys, you've just completed season four. And as you're thinking about ideas and you scan the whole history of documentary looking for films to spoof, 
with love. What kind of things jump out at you that make you think, ah, that would be a good one for documentary now? I feel like in the beginning it was, well, who could Bill and Fred play? And we don't have that in the same way. And then it's always just how will they, all those pieces fall into one season and making sure they're from different eras and different looks and not getting caught doing too many talking heads. You know, the hard thing is, you know, there are still obviously great documentaries coming out, but you don't want to do a bunch of modern ones all at once. And in a weird way, like there's a, I feel like a whole new genre is like documentaries made in the last three years. (laughs) So you don't want to get caught. I'm going to, I'm going to go guys. Bye. My son's going to a sleepover. <laughs> Bye, guys. Enjoy. Bye-bye. Thanks, Seth. Bye, Seth. I was just going to say that what was satisfying this season was that in a niche show, this was the nichiest of seasons, and that we had episodes based on documentaries that I know nobody has seen. You know, the hairdresser's one. All that exists is a bad copy on YouTube. And I love the idea that people are going to go and seek it out and watch it now, but it really opens the door to like, oh, we don't necessarily have to rely on the most famous documentaries ever made as subject matter, you know, or the idea that like, oh, if you haven't already seen the documentary, you won't ever even get this. The idea that you could watch documentary now first and then go, oh man, that was funny. I want to go watch that documentary now, which is kind of a fun place to be. I do think ultimately, and just to add a little bit on the Bill and Fred note, but I, I do think always the first and foremost thing that is always the way in and the characters. I think that was the thing with Salons. It was just such a wonderful world of people. Ultimately, I think wherever the episode succeeds, it's documentary. So it's always about people ultimately for us. And I think that's where we really tap into. Or octopuses. Or yeah, octopi, yeah. People have asked, like, oh, what about those? You know, there's this sort of a whole genre of documentaries that are about criticisms of corporate, you know, America, or criticisms of the banking industry, or criticisms of that drug company, or why don't you guys do one about... and. It's like, well, yeah, but who are the characters in those ones? I'm sure, you look, we know John or Bill or Fred or Seth. I mean, they can write something funny about anything, but Reese is totally right. It's like, it really is anchored in the characters. It's the 100th anniversary of Enoch of the North, which is often considered the first feature documentary. But one of your very first documentary nows was called Canuck the Hunter, and it's clearly based on Enoch of the North. And it's a lot of fun, but also in 23 minutes, you really encapsulate a lot of the themes you might encountered a documentary film class, right? Like the interplay of reality and fiction, the shifting dichotomy of the subject and object, the problem of the ethnographic eye. And so when I first hear Rainer talk about, you know, about fiction and reality and how when you bring a camera into the wilderness, it's no yeah, longer a wilderness. It, it, you play it for a joke, but he's kind of right too, right? You guys are involved in that discussion. One thing to do, I guess it's probably very clear, but as much as all of us really appreciate comedy, at the core, everybody who makes this show is a hardcore documentary nerd. Bill and Fred and Seth and John, and I include Reese and myself, but those guys have seen everything and want to talk about everything and watch new documentaries and watch old documentaries and have seen the Blu-rays and have their Criterion collections and really enjoy talking about the filmmaking part of it. You know, as much as great characters, there's a lot of thought that is going through their brains as they're writing about the process of documentary filmmaking. I work in the documentary world as well. And as much as my real doc filmmaker friends want to nerd out over documentary ethics, and these guys want to have the same conversations. And frequently, if you look at a lot of our episodes, actually, and this is not in any kind of or any choice, I don't think, but a lot of them are filmmaker forward, whether it's we're challenging the voice or revealing the film. So I think that idea that the money touches on the beginning of Soldier and what we do in Nook as well, 
that sort of the presence of the filmmaker and that contrast, or rather the contradiction of observing life, but presenting life at the same time. And like you said, objective and subjective, I think that is maybe always a character that we, that maybe we become self-aware of <laughs> as well in that we're taking this thing as well and we're reinterpreting it. So I think it's always in the background of our thinking. If you think about Penna Baker or the Maisels, these guys that were like really all about like direct cinema and like, no, no, we're not a part of this. We don't want to be a part of this. We're just observing. We've become obsessed with those filmmakers and their identity as documentary filmmakers and saying, right, but you say that, but you're also fascinating subjects yourself. I'll never see Great Guardians as anything but a horror movie again. So. <laughs> <laughs> You totally won me over for not just doing a remake of Nanook, but Nanook Revisited. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. That was like the ultimate documentary insider move. So hats <laughs> off to you for that. And really just in some ways expanding the audience for documentary, expanding the notion of what we as a collective community of people who watch nonfiction TV can appreciate and just going back through the history with a comedic flair. So. Thank you all so much for a brilliant show, a great season four, and for being with us today. You're very welcome. Thank you. It's so nice to hear as well. 